What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. It's a cold day in January, and you're on your way to work. You're probably tired, stressed, and late. Then again, it's Friday, so you're looking forward to the weekend. As you walk into the metro station, you hear the sounds of a violin. Oh god, it's a busker. Don't make eye contact. It's some classical song anyway. They might do better if they played something catchy like Taylor Swift. You don't have cash anyway. They'd probably just buy booze if you did. Let's just get to the train and get this day over with. Would you feel any different if you knew that Busker was one of the world's greatest violinists, playing on a $4 million Stradivarius? Yes, you'd probably stop and appreciate the performance. That just a night before would have cost you hundreds of dollars. It's not your fault you didn't know, and you wouldn't be alone. More than a thousand people walked past him that day. He wasn't playing catchy songs or asking for attention. It was simply to see if music would stand apart from context. And it didn't. Over the course of 43 minutes, he made $32. The experiment was orchestrated by journalist Gene Weingarten, who would go on to win a Pulitzer Prize for the article he wrote on it. I'm not opening with this because it's some grand reflection on humanity. The average person won't know the difference between very good and brilliant, especially when it's a song you've never heard from someone you don't know when you've got somewhere to be. I'm opening with it because this little experiment is probably how you know Joshua Bell, and it shouldn't be. My name is Lowell Berlanti, and this is Prodigy. In case you aren't familiar with the term busking, it just means a street performer. Last week I said this episode would be on gaming, but some things came up and I had to push it back. This episode is with someone very special that I've been trying to book for months and it finally worked out. His name is Joshua Bell and he is the definition of a prodigy. He debuted with the Philadelphia Orchestra at 14 and at 17 made his first appearance at Carnegie Hall. He performed the solos for the film The Red Violin, won a Grammy, received the Avery Fisher Prize, and has performed with virtually every major orchestra in the world. There's a lot more achievements, but it's just too many to list. This is my conversation with Joshua Bell. Thank you so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Sure. Nice to talk with you. So 
I was reading about you and your mother was a therapist and your father was a psychologist and they're both New Yorkers and they moved to Bloomington, Indiana and started a farm where you were born. Can you tell me a little bit about some of your earliest memories? They moved there because my father actually took a job at the Kinsey Institute for Sex Research of all places uh, and also a professor at Indiana University. But yeah, they were New Yorkers and uh, didn't know what to expect in middle America. And they, they were music lovers as well and, and were pleasantly surprised when they arrived in Bloomington. And it happens to have the largest music school in the country and lots and lots of concerts and cultural life. I grew up there. I was born the year that they arrived in Indiana. So I'm really from Indiana. And uh, I grew up in a musical household. So my mother played the piano. My father had a violin. He was sort of self-taught. When Joshua was four, he strung rubber bands around the knobs on his dresser drawers and experimented with the different pitches they'd make when stretched. And my parents, I think, took that as a clue, like, we better get him an instrument, a real instrument right away, and got me a 16th size violin at the age of four. And so, uh, yeah, I was lucky to start playing the violin very early. So I grew up in a musical family, but not a family of hardcore music professionals. So there was never a lot of pressure on me to become a musician, but they, they wanted me to have music in my life. I guess like your family would come together and everyone sort of played an instrument. I can't remember the word you used, but like some sort of like family musical time. We used to call it uh, music howls. In the 19th century, they would say salon or musical soiree, but we, we call them music howls. So it's usually around the holidays when extended family would come, like, um, cousins and things from Toronto and other places. All my cousins played instruments. So we'd kind of play together or take turns getting up and playing for each other and, um, you know, usually I enjoyed it. Not always. Sometimes my mother said, can I bring down your violin and, you know, let everyone hear what you've been practicing. And, but generally it was a very joyous uh, way to be together through music. And that's sort of what I grew up with. What were your first experiences with the instrument? Like, I mean, did you take right to it or was it something that you sort of learned to love? Since as long as I can remember, I loved any kind of puzzle, trying to figure things out, you know, word puzzles or logic puzzles. And for me, the violin was this amazing puzzle. You know, it's a bunch of dots on a page and that turns into music. There's something also very mathematically appealing about music and the way the harmony works. And I, I, I think that was early on, that was the appeal. I, the emotional elements of expressing myself, I'm not sure when that came into play. That was a bit later. If you've never seen Joshua play, the emotion that comes through is captivating. He is connected to the violin and completely absorbed in the music. But I think at first I gravitated towards the puzzle elements, and that and that really kept me going. I enjoyed learning new pieces and di diving into it and trying to figure it out. And how does that work with my fingers? And my first teacher, she liked that I caught on very quickly, and so she pushed me through repertoire and pieces that were probably she shouldn't have. They were well beyond what I should have been doing at that early age. But in a way that kind of kept me interested. Didn't know in terms of whether I was talented or better than others. It may sound end up sounding like I'm being cocky, uh, but I do remember it's actually one of my, you know, an early memory of nursery school when I was four years old. I just started the violin, and I remember another kid came in and brought his violin in for show and tell and played for everyone. And that was like the first time I realized that I might be a little bit better than he was. I, I, it was so out of tune. I was like looking at everybody and saying, don't you notice this is out of tune? It was sort of innocent. Well, I didn't know where I fit in, you know, and I realized, um, that maybe I was a little bit better than most at that age. If this sounds cocky, it's really not. Here's a clip of Bell playing. 
He looks like he's around 10 years old at the time. As it turns out, I had developed, you know, perfect pitch is what we call it. My mother would play notes on the piano and I'd say, that's A, that's B, that's... And that's something that when you start playing music early, I think that it gets cemented um, early in your brain. I, I took to it rather quickly and I was lucky to have parents that encouraged me to, to play because you, you need that too. Um, some of my colleagues have told me that they liked music, but their parents didn't think music was a good profession to even be in. I, I can't imagine being in that situation. When you were seeking your third teacher, Joseph Gingold, he wanted to, I guess, make sure that your parents weren't forcing it on you. Yeah, he he was this renowned professor at Indiana. He was in his 70s. I was 12. And he was someone people came from all around the world to study with. And he didn't have any young students, you know, pre-college students at that time. He had had them before and had actually some misgivings and reservations about um, that whole dynamic of a child with a pushy parents, putting a lot of pressure on the child, and then actually the child burning out and giving up music for good because it's a complex uh, relationships there. And, and he was wary about taking on another student. So he, he did sit them down and try to find out what their motivations were. And I think he was pleased when he just saw their genuine enthusiasm for music and their fact that they didn't expect me to become even become a musician, that they just um, wanted me to have the best teacher possible. And he took me on as a student. And that was so necessary for me at that time. I had very good teachers up till then, but I had reached a point where I needed that next level. They could see like videos on YouTube of me when I was 11. And then one year later, after a year of studying with him, you can see a marked difference in the way I approached music because he was able to take me to that next level. And then within a, a couple of years, uh, my chance to play with the Philadelphia Orchestra, my career started really at the age of 14. And a lot of that is really due to having that right teacher at the right point of my development. And what was that big break that you had? I started at the age of 13. I started entering some competitions. You know, there. There are these competitions out there. You could win $500 or $1,000. This is, of course, 1981. It's worth a little more than it is now. It sounded like a lot to me back then um, as, a, as an eighth grader. And I started doing well. I, I won a couple of these things and then entered my first sort of national competition. It was sponsored by Seventeen Magazine uh, and General Motors. It was called the um, Seventeen Magazine Concerto Competition for high schoolers around the country. And I was a freshman. So I was actually the youngest for the competition in Rochester, New York, and I flew out there with my with my dad. I, I had made it to the top 12 uh, violinists in the round, and when I won that, I got the chance to play with the Philadelphia Orchestra and Ricardo Muti, the great uh, maestro, and that was really my big break because, as, as it turns out, I played with them that fall, and a manager who became my manager for years after that, he came to hear me. He had heard about me from one of the judges in the competition. He came to the concert, sort of followed me around for a year and courted me to sign with him as an agent, and then I did that and soon after a recording contract and, and it sort of snowballed from there. But really it was that opportunity that uh, started it all. And um, I was very fortunate. When you were a kid, you would like hit the tennis ball against the garage door, which I used to do that too. Um, really? Oh, yeah. But, you know, my garage door had windows on it. So occasionally, you know, I would break one of those windows. But, you know, my parents didn't mind too much. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, you were in a tournament when you were 10, and the goal, it was a tennis tournament, but it wasn't like playing the game. It was to hit the ball into the corner, and you know, you got all the way to nationals. I think you placed fourth, and it just seems like you displayed this sort of yes. 
rage to master that they sometimes call it where anything that you engage in you take very seriously and want to excel at it didn't work in golf unfortunately (laughs) (laughs) pain of my existence i love that game and that that game fits into my personal life perfectly because you need that focus and hasn't yet clicked uh but in in most things um and basically in all things i do take them seriously and and approach them in a similar way whether it was puzzles as a kid or tennis and same with basketball um which which i do now quite a lot um for my leisure i just go out and shoot baskets um for it's sort of mental therapy and you know but even when i do it now i set goals in my mind i want to be able to hit 20 free throws in a row without missing and i'm not going home until i do it you know it's a little bit obsessive there's probably a you know you might call it ocd i don't know um but it's it's kind of a necessary thing. Uh, certainly in, in music, you have to keep telling yourself to keep repeating, keep repeating until you get it right. So I certainly had that with tennis at the age of 10. And, and it was this weird competition, which actually I think a quarter of a million kids entered into this around the country. It was like a little craze at the time sponsored by Mr. Peanut. The goal was not to beat someone. It was just to you were fed 30 balls and five of each stroke, and you'd have to hit into the corners of the court. And it's the closer to the corner there was a target, you would get more points. So I practiced this and I managed to get fourth in the country at the age of 10 and flew to Boston with my mother for the finals and got to meet Martina Navratilova, who's just starting out and uh, has always been noted by those around me, whether it's throwing a piece of paper into a trash basket, you know, before a concert in my dressing room, I set myself a challenge. It kind of relaxes me as well, but I'll, I'll put the trash can in the very corner of the somewhere in the room and I say, I'm, I'm not going to go on stage until I can bounce it off the, this wall and that wall and get it in the basket. <laughs> it's kind of silly. Um, but I have that kind of uh, obsessive uh, personality. So that, I, But it does help in music for sure. Uh, I found that that's helped me. Yeah, I was actually talking to Sean yesterday and I was, you know, I was like, oh, does he maybe have any diagnosable conditions? Because, you know, just not because (laughs) just like, you know, because that pervasive, um, like, I think is really, really helpful when you're trying to master something. So that's and he told me about uh, like a little app game that you guys that they had put together and sent you the link. And the next morning they got up and you had like the high score. And I just thought that was a really funny story. (laughs) Well, let's not get started on video games. My whole childhood, the years of development from like, 13 to 18 were not only dominated by playing music and studying with Joseph Gingold, this great opportunity, but also skipping out the back door of the music school after my mother dropped me off to practice and spending four hours straight uh, at the local arcade where they actually had an ongoing contest and they would post your your name on a board uh, who had the highest score on each machine. And of course, this is drove me crazy and I would want to get the high at one point I had four or five machines the highest score in the, in the arcade at once in fact there was a, a funny story of when I, was, I started to get a little bit of recognition for playing the violin and a kid came up to me once and you're famous and I, and I said I said well no I'm assuming he meant about the music and he says yeah your name is on all the arcade games in the <laughs> in the rack and queue that was the name of the place in Indiana so um, yeah, video games was another area where I wasted so much time and energy because of this obsession of mine. Joshua graduates high school and is about to make his debut at Carnegie Hall. We'll get into that after a quick break. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. 
Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome back to Prodigy. You can find all the stuff mentioned in this episode at prodigypodcast.com. All right, back to my conversation with Joshua Bell. So you're 17 years old. What was that like? And I guess what, what did you imagine the future would hold? Yeah, I graduated from high school a couple of years early, and I had parents that were allowed me to move out of the house at the age of 16 with some roommates at the university. And thinking about that now, with I have a 13-year-old boy. The idea of that in three years is just unthinkable. But um, at the time, it seemed, seemed right. And I went to New York the next year for my, my first Carnegie Hall concert and then European tour. And certainly very exciting. I, I realized that New York was a place I wanted to go be in. Uh, I found it so invigorating. Um, for a career, I, I didn't really know what was going to come my way. I just uh, knew I loved performing. I was sort of a shy kid always. Um, you know, I was not big on getting in front of the class and giving talks, speeches, or presentations. I was uh, in meeting new people. I was on the shyer side, but but performing in front of a public, um, for some reason, that suited me, in, uh, and I felt comfortable doing that. Um, and, and thank goodness, because um, I do a lot of that and had to do a lot of that. And it was really where I felt at home with the instrument under my chin and, and expressing myself in music. I felt very able to open myself emotionally in front of an audience and, and express myself and not feel uncomfortable. But I didn't know what to expect uh, with career, but it just kind of I went where it took me and things uh, led to it other things. And, and eventually I found myself making a career of music, which is sort of the thing I love to do the most. So, Yeah. And just watching you play, I mean, you can see the emotion that comes through. It's, it's amazing. I got a chance to watch the film, The Red Violin, the other night, which I thought was great. And it was inspired by Stradivarius violin. And your violin at the time was used in the filming. You performed all the solo parts. These violins, the history of them actually turned out to be really, really interesting to me. A Stradivarius is a stringed instrument made by members of the Italian family Stradivari during the 17th and 18th century, particularly by Antonio Stradivari. His golden period was from 1700 to 1725, and instruments made during that time are the most coveted. 
The Stradivarius violin is incredibly special. I got my first experience with one when I was 12 years old because my teacher, Joseph Gingold, had a Stradivarius, uh, which was made in 1683, a very early one, at the most sweetest sound of any instrument I think I've ever played on. Occasionally, Gingold would give it to me as a 12-year-old, say, just play a few notes on this, and it would totally inspire me um, because of the overtones. It's just a complexity of sound that's very hard to define, but you know it when you have it. So first of all, let me just put it out there that anyone who's read any article about that says that it's been proven that there's no difference between a modern violin and a Stradivarius, that it's all in the, in the heads of those who are playing it, that's completely wrong. There is something very hard to define and special that inspires the player that's very hard to quantify. So anyway, so this, the Stradivarius has this complexity of sound, also projection of sound in a concert hall. When you play in a big concert hall like Carnegie Hall, there's a lot of distance between you and the, the last row. And there's something about a Strad that even when you play soft, the sound spins in a way that it reaches the back of the hall in a way that other instruments have a harder time doing. So it's many things. And then, of course, on top of it, the value, the monetary value is so high because there's so few of them. Um, there are only a few, you know, a few hundred in existence, and they, many of them are behind glass in museums. There are a lot of collectors out there, and I was very lucky to get in the market sort of early in my career at the age of 19. I bought a, a, a kind of odd Stradivarius that didn't have the original scroll and some other things that didn't make it the most expensive one, but it was what I could afford, and I it was still the price of a house. But that allowed me to then trade in for the Tom Taylor Stradivarius. Uh, and I used that for the Red Violin film. And then a couple of years later, in 2001, I purchased the violin that I have now, the Gibson X Hubermann Stradivarius, made in 1713. But I was only able to do that because of being in the market and trading up and my instruments appreciating in value, because I, there's no way I could afford a $20 million violin now, which some of the Strads are going for um, in the market. So it's, it's kind of crazy, but um, they're still cheaper than Van Gogh paintings. Right. <laughs> yeah, if you compare it to that, sure, right? <laughs> I was curious, what, what is the major difference between the Tom Taylor that you had and the Gibson that you have now? Every violin, every Strad even is different in character, although there are similar characteristics between them. But uh, the Tom Taylor was from a later period. Uh, the sound of those instruments are, are a bit more like the Guarneri's, which was the other violin maker at that time that was coming into fashion, you might say, uh, a little deeper, richer, uh, like a viola-like sound. Um, and the Tom Taylor had a bit of that. The, 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 the Hubermann, which I bought, is from what they call the golden period, which I feel is the best sort of balance between the brilliance and sweetness and the power on the lower end of the instrument. So it's a matter of taste, though. Um, I, but I found this one to be much more powerful. I didn't have to work as hard to play on over an orchestra, because uh, often I'm playing with... 80-piece orchestra, and you have to hear me above the orchestra, and having a violin that really projects makes a big difference. I, I like to call it the Hubermann, because it, Hubermann was the great, one of the great violinists of the 20th century, so I'm very proud to be touching an instrument that he used to play. Joshua owns the Gibson X Hubermann Stradivarius, which was made in 1713, during Stradivari's golden period. The name Gibson comes from one of its early owners, George Alfred Gibson. It was later acquired by Bronislaw Huberman, and during this time it was stolen twice. The first time was from his hotel room and was returned immediately. The second time was while Huberman was performing in Carnegie Hall with his other violin. The Stradivarius was stolen while backstage in his dressing room, and Huberman never saw it again. The thief was Julian Altman, who went on to become a violinist with the National Symphony Orchestra and performed with the stolen instrument many times. Fifty years after the theft, 
Julian Altman admitted it to his wife on his deathbed. Someday, I, I think a movie should be made just of the stories of these two characters, Huberman and Altman and the, and the, and the violin. I think it could be an interesting story, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the story behind the violins is so interesting. And I guess now you're a part of that one. So that's really cool. Yeah, that's sort of what the, the red violin played on that that idea, because the red violin film followed this V violin over a period of 300 years. And whenever you pick up a violin like the Strad, you know, I, every day I get to pick it up. It's incredible. I, I lift this 300 year old relic and I use it as a tool. I can't think of any other profession where you do that with something 300 years old, where it's literally a useful tool and not just something to admire. But uh, I do this every day, and I, I think of all the people that played on it, and I know about Huberman and Gibson, who was one in the 19th century, and but I think there was hundreds of years before. What kind of stories? You know, the, the Tom Taylor I owned before apparently was saved uh, from a fire. Um, it was in the house, and, and the great violinist Joseph Joachim, who was the best friend of Brahms, who Brahms wrote his violin concerto for, apparently ran into the house and took the violin before the house could burn down. You have to save the violin. I mean, these are the kind of stories you get uh, if you look into their past, and many of them will never, never know. Yeah, super interesting. I saw that your kids are all playing different instruments in the, that documentary, the recent one, and uh, mm-hmm. I was kind of like really impressed by their, their skill level as well. And I was just curious what it was like to sort of be mentoring your own kids to play instruments as well. It's interesting to, to see, to live through that again, you know, to see them starting new pieces that I remember from my childhood. You know, my son Samuel plays the violin, so he's going through some of the pieces that I remember as a kid. So that's kind of fun for me. And yeah, they each play different instruments, cello, violin, and piano. I wanted them to, to have music for sure in their lives. I haven't put a huge amount of pressure, and my guess is that they may not become musicians professionally, but, but I just think music is something that every child should have something I advocate in general in schools and and something that really is very important to me. I think the world would be a lot better place if every child had music in their lives. It stimulates their brain in in countless ways and makes them learn how to play together. It teaches camaraderie. It teaches language. It teaches mathematics skills. So many things. And um, so I really believe in that. Uh, You know, they don't practice a lot. They have school. They have other things. And they're not perhaps not as obsessive about it as I was, but uh, they're their own people and they have other interests and we'll see where it takes them. From the Washington Post experiment, which is sort of how I found you, I was just curious, like, what was your takeaway from the whole thing? Well, the Washington Post, it's funny that uh, experiment, which really didn't think was anything more than a fun little thing to do one week, you know, weekend or or was during the week, I can't remember, but it, it was a journalist, Gene Weingarten, who was a well-known journalist and he had this idea like he wanted to explore context in music and what does it mean the connection between audience and he said what would happen if when you're in washington dc playing at the kennedy center and people are paying money to go hear you play and but what if you were just to play incognito in the subway would it would there be a connection between the audience would they stop i told him right away i said i don't think much is going to happen during rush hour going to work i don't think it's going to do a whole lot and and he had this idea maybe they'll just all it'll they'll all just stop and then crowd around and and listen to um you know you playing bach and there'll be this magical experience <laughs> and so as it turns out it played out a little more like i had predicted what i didn't expect was that it would get this sort of following um he ended up getting a pulitzer prize for a really interesting article that he turned it into something 
much more interesting than I could have imagined. He followed the people who walked by, asked them whether they even noticed. And the fact that, that very few people stopped to listen, although there were some, and I did make $39 in the 40 minutes. <laughs> I, I get letters all the time from, from kids saying they, they open their case and play in front of Macy's or whatever, and they made three times the amount I made in 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I was not a kid. <laughs> um, and I was also playing in a place where part of this experiment was that I play in a place where it's not known as a musical venue, you know. There are some places in the New York subways where people are expected to, to crowd around and watch like a venue. This was not like that. Joshua isn't simply making excuses here. There's a whole psychology to busking. In a different location, at a different time, Joshua would have attracted a large crowd. We'll be right back after a quick break. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. It's The Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> Ooh. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh. Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Welcome back to Prodigy. You're listening to my conversation with Joshua Bell. What it showed to me and was interesting for me as a performer, just to maybe value even more that that amazing connection that happens when the audience is giving their 100% attention, sitting there listening, hanging on every note you're doing. And there's, there is a kind of magical connection between audience and, and performer. Um, same in the theater, you know, it's, it's a little bit like that. You know, if you're going to start doing Shakespeare soliloquies in the middle of rush hour and people are running by, it's not going to mean much either. And, but there's this, there is something very special about that atmosphere and classical music in general or jazz or music that require it. it, This is music that really requires a participation in the listener. You have to follow it in a way and let your mind work actively. It's not passive music. It's not background music. Never was meant to be. And that it's always funny for me to hear a Beethoven symphony playing in the background at a restaurant at low volume. It's like nothing to do with what the music was meant to be. You're supposed to be paying attention to it as if you would listen to a Shakespeare play 
and and being enveloped by the volume and the intensity of the music that's really what classical music is about is that is that experience of the listener and the participation of the listener as well as the player you didn't think it would be that big a thing and then he won a pulitzer prize for it so i mean yeah <laughs> not only that, not only that like you said you you heard of me because of it and there you go you know? yeah we didn't have the social media likes quite back then in 2000 seven when I did it. <laughs> but I guess I got a like from you oh, yeah. <laughs> in the fact that you know who I am yeah. and and, uh, and here we are talking. So, you know, I, yeah, so I, I thought it would, it would be something that would die away. You know, it would just be a momentary little article in the paper and it spread on YouTube and, and um, it seemed to somehow inspire, you know, I mean, I've gotten, I can't tell you really how many emails I've gotten from priests and rabbis and and self-help people that say they use this story as a they extrapolate from it things that i that may not even be in there but they (laughs) you know they they use it in ways to talk about the context and meaning of the connection of human beings you know in various ways and so it really kind of resonated with people in different different ways so i got a little tired of that being my thing you know like people would say oh yeah i've heard of you you're the guy from the subway from the metro station yeah that gets (laughs) Like it's, uh, I'm sure. You know, you know, I don't want that to be my uh, only legacy. Yeah, of course. It definitely gave me an interest in classical music that I didn't have before. You know, after like watching you play and stuff like that. So I definitely think it was, you know, overall a good thing. But I would love to have seen them have you play again in an area that was like more a different time and a different place to see how the difference were. Funny enough, I did come back like three years later over Christmas time. I came back to the metro station at Union Union Station and the main station in uh, Washington. And this time they advertised it or they just made a mention that I was going to be in the station. And it was really fun because I came and I brought some music students. So I also wanted to use the opportunity to celebrate like young people playing music. And and so I brought uh, some music students. We played a little Vivaldi and Bach at the station. And actually we got something like 3,000 people showed up just to crowd around and watch. And and it was really fun kind of follow-up. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, I'm going to look that up. Uh, I just have a few more questions, I guess, from asked some people on the violinists uh, subreddit um, if they had questions for you. And they had a few, I guess, violin and music composing specific questions. But uh, who's your favorite composer and why? Well, it's very hard to say my favorite composer. It depends on, first of all, what I'm playing often. is <laughs> usually my favorite. Uh, during the pandemic, it's been Bach for many reasons. Uh, Bach wrote for the violin the six sonatas. And partitas for solo violin, which is very unusual to have just a, this incredibly complex works for just the instrument alone. And during the pandemic, I've been basically alone. I can't play chamber music with my friends. And I've been delving into this Bach, which is sort of the, it's the Bible of the violin repertoire. It's the Holy Grail or the, the Old Testament, you might say. It's, it's, it's what precedes everything in classical music in a way. And his music, unlike anything else, I find it's hits you on a meta level, on a level that's beyond just basic human emotions. It kind of touches into the universe in a way that uh, uh, it sounds a little corny, but sort of shows you the truth of humanity or the universe in such a beautiful way that the beauty of his music, you could play at a funeral uh, or you could play at a wedding because it, it expresses a, a, a beauty that's beyond good or bad or, or sadness or happiness. So it's very something very special. Um, then you have Beethoven, you know, which is the very human existence. And he, I mean, he, for me, is his nine symphonies is the greatest achievement any man has done. It's in the, t- you know, top few 
things I could think of that have ever been done by a human being. Um, and I love his music, and I've gotten to direct with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, my orchestra, where I'm music director. I've done eight of the nine symphonies so far, and the, the famous ninth is the only one that I haven't done yet, so that's something on my bucket list. And then there's, you know, Schubert, Mozart. Uh, so it depends on the on the mood. The greatest songwriter of all time was Franz Schubert. He wrote the most beautiful songs uh, for the voice and, of course, uh, for violin and orchestra and symphonies as well. But uh, as far as pure melodies, beautiful melodies, Schubert, most people who are not in music would know him for sure from his famous Ave Maria, which is one of the most beautiful melodies. But uh, anyway, it's hard to choose. Oh, sure. Oh, that's a great answer. And asked about hand size. Is, is hand size important for violin? <laughs> um, hand size. Um, this doesn't have anything to do with Donald Trump, does it? Because I don't think he plays. <laughs> he doesn't play the violin. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I couldn't couldn't resist. Um, uh, no, actually, hand size. I've seen the entire gamut. I mean, they used to say that Paganini. Paganini is the legendary figure from the early 19th century. That was perhaps the greatest violinist that ever lived. We'll never. We don't have any recordings from that time. He wrote this the most difficult music for the violin. Clearly, if he was able to play it, he must have been incredible. But apparently, he had a disease of the hand. I forget what it's called. That made his fingers very long and spindly, some sort of bone disease, but which apparently helped him able to stretch extreme distances. And maybe that's legend. We don't know exactly. I think thin fingers are generally helpful because when you get up high in the violin register, um, the distance between notes is so infinitesimally small that if you have very big fingers you can you can get it in your way but there are people that get around it just beautifully with big fingers how do you structure your practice well you know practicing is a skill um and learning how to practice is, is really important you know i practice with my children now and, and i can see you know see the mistakes they make and how they practice not just the mistakes they made while they're practicing I tell them it's really important that you go into a practice with a goal, you know, and not just play through your pieces or whatever, um, but you have some kind of goal. It doesn't mean that you have to practice a long time. It's it's more important that you have quality practice. The general goal, from I think, is that when you finish your practice, that you're better at what you're doing than you were before you started. That sounds very logical, but it doesn't. If you don't do it right, it won't. You won't achieve that. So so maybe you take a a page of music and say, I'm going to master this from here to here. And I'm going to, you know, and repetition, you know, and slow practice so playing under tempo. Sometimes it's, you know, I use tricks like take a metronome and I'll, if it's a hard technical passage, I'll take a metronome at, at 60 and I'll play it and I'll do it five times in a row without making a, an obvious mistake. And then I can click it up to 62. And then I keep going until finally I find myself doing it at the proper tempo and it, you don't even realize you've been getting faster and faster because it's such slow increments. You know, it's the little tricks like that. But focusing on one thing, you know, um, even or musical things like what do I want to, I take a phrase and what I really want to say with this phrase. Really, even if it's a piece I've done for 30 years, I like to look at it fresh in the practice and I say, okay, I've been doing it this way, but am I, is it really the right way to do it? It's like an actor who's been, you know, doing Hamlet and saying to be or not to be, you know. He looking at it again and saying, do I really want to say it that way? Or maybe or I want to say, you know, to be or not to be, you know, and thinking, how is he saying it in the most profound way that's going to work? You know, the same with musical phrases. You want to, you want to keep exploring those things. Um, but that's done in a practice room. Practice room is like a playground, figuring out new ways of doing things. Um, 
And then when you get on stage, you put that all behind you and it should be so well in your fingers that you can just concentrate on telling the story of the music and the technical aspects. You've worked on that already and you don't have to think. And that's, so that's what practicing is for. I just wanted to see, I guess, you know, if there's anything you wanted to talk about that you're working on now or, or you know, anything, fundraising, anything like that that you wanted to mention. During this pandemic, it's been, I've had now 10 months of not really basically not performing in public. Uh, so it's been interesting and uh, finding ways to connect with audiences from home. So I've been doing some concerts at home on the internet, which has been an interesting experience. And um, my friends and family can tune in. And I recently started working with a company called Mandolin, mandolin.com, and they're presenting concerts of all kinds of concerts. And so I'm going to start doing a series from my home through Mandolin. And I think it's really a wonderful piece. I think it's going to change the way we, we consume music going forward, even after the pandemic is over. I think people are now getting used to enjoying music at home on their big screen or, you know, uh, from the comfort of home. It's not going to replace live music. And I, I certainly hope not, but, uh, interested in setting up these musical soirees that I grew up with, bringing friends in eventually and doing, uh, house concerts that can be viewed, uh, around the world through the miracle of the internet. So, um, that's something I'm interested in going forward. Yeah, wow, that sounds amazing. Sounds like a good reason to upgrade my speaker system. But yeah, no, I'll yeah. definitely uh, direct people to that. And, um, you know, I really appreciate your time. It was a wonderful conversation and just a really interesting subject for me. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It was nice talking with you. Thanks for including me. Joshua was recently featured in a documentary called Joshua Bell, At Home with Music. You can find it on PBS, and I'll post a link on the website. If you haven't seen the film The Red Violin, I definitely recommend it. It even has Samuel L. Jackson in it. You can find Joshua Bell on Twitter and Instagram at Joshua Bell Music, or on his website at joshuabell.com. So, this is the end of the first season of Prodigy. I'm going to keep publishing episodes every week. They'll just be a bit more relaxed and conversational while I gear up for season two. Thank you all so much for listening. I've gotten a bunch of really good feedback from people on how I can improve, which has been a huge help to me. If you want to chat, have feedback, or an episode idea, or think you'd be a good person to interview, you can find a bunch of ways to reach me at prodigypodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe, because I'll be back next week with another episode of Prodigy. Prodigy was created and produced by me, Lowell Berlanti. The executive producer is my good friend and mentor. Tyler Klang. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. 
Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.